This is a Channel 7 News scene special report with our continuing coverage of the People's Temple story and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. Now with the latest details, Van Amberg and Marsha Brandwin. Good evening. Here's what's happening. We're interrupting our special broadcasting to bring you this special report, um, a news scene news break on the People's Temple mass suicides in Guyana and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. I would mention to you now, tonight's movie will run in its entirety immediately following this special report. I also have to warn you as we begin this special report that what you're about to see almost defies description, and some of you may not want to watch it. All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to part two of our episode number 106, the Jim Jones and the People's Temple episode for our August cult month, which may extend a little further. I don't know, because uh, we've only covered two cults so far, and we've only got one more Wednesday in August, so uh, yeah, that might, that might extend further. Anyway, my name's Josh Cannon. I'm here with my co-host, Mike. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, just had my first uh, day of class for this new term at uh, WCU. It was uh, interesting. Um, the new teacher I have, she's Indian, and she she honestly reminded me of of one of the I I think the main gal who was interviewed in in the documentary Wild Wild Country. So I was like, that's kind of crazy. What is Wild Wild um, Country? Wild Wild Country is the Netflix documentary that's about the, um, what's his name? It, it it won an Emmy, and it was it's really good. It's a multi-part documentary, but um, yeah, it's about the controversial Indian guru Bhagwan, uh, Ranji Rajneesh. Yeah. Well, we are off uh, to a fantastic start so far. Uh. <laughs> Anyway. No, but if you seriously, it's it's it, it's it's about uh, the Rajneeshis, this this cult that uh, formed in Oregon. Oh, okay. and it's actually really really good. You're, I like how well, you, you circled it back around to cults, so now I'm interested again. Ow. Yeah, yeah. My left knee is fucked up for some reason. I think it's a ligament or something. I have all these soft tissue injuries all over the place. I'm a fucking yeah. Wreck. They 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 ended up. Uh, Carrying out the first ever bioterror attack in the United States. Wow. Sounds pretty serious. It is. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah, I'm doing pretty good, too. My band, Dancing with Ghosts, we played our first show in a little over a year um, this Saturday. Um, it was um, August 18th. And it was at a little bar in Jacksonville called Roadhouse. Roadhouse. And... Uh, Bruce Willis was there, and he kicked the shit out of some chairs. No, um... I, I think you mean Patrick Swayze. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. Every time I think Roadhouse, I just think Bruce Willis going, walking in a bar and just kicking the shit out of a chair and walking out. Um, but no, we were at this place, Roadhouse, and when we rolled up to it, you know, because so, we're, we're kind of like... We're straddling the edge of, like... Our appearance-wise is like goth slash industrial, kind of yeah. like Nine Inch Nails in like the '90s in their downward spiral phase. Mm -hmm. um, so we're walking in there. Stephanie is dressed up in fishnets and like fucking black, all black, and this crazy like eye makeup, and I'm wearing like these crazy looking, uh, like almost like the Michael Jackson beat it jacket but in in <laughs> pants form if if there was a, pa wow. a pants form of that 
And there probably um, was. Yeah, it's got zippers all up, but it's cool as shit though. You know, we walk in there and the uh-huh. sound guy is like, uh, we were like, yeah, we're we're here to open for uh, my friend's band, um, the Tom Bennett band. And the guy, the sound guy who's like, looked like fucking Willie Nelson. This guy looked like he was like 70 years old, long white ponytail. He's like, he's like, really? You guys scare me. And I was like, well, I guess we're doing a good job then. You know, I guess we're, you know, achieving our goals. And <laughs> he actually turned out to be a pretty nice guy. And he actually liked our set. So I'm like judging the fuck out of this place before even, um, even like, knowing what the situation was i'm looking at all these people sizing them up going like these people are going to hate us they're like judging us so hardcore and like we ended up playing and everybody pretty much loved it and we sold a lot of merch we sold some t-shirts we sold some cds and and it's like just goes to show you don't judge a book by its cover yeah or roadhouse and and i have to like I have to like question. It's like where do where do all these preconceived notions come from in my head? I might have had like one or two bad experiences as a kid. I'd probably say media. Maybe. But I think it's from if you have one really bad experience with a certain group of people and it like traumatizes you. Yeah. I think it like cements in your head that all people of this type are this way. As soon as I see a camouflage hat or a camouflage shirt or whatever i'm like he's a redneck he's a uber conservative diehardically likes totos africa yeah <laughs> yeah it was a b-roll there yeah that, that, that yeah that's a whole nother story but yeah you know but but that's not always the case you know it's like just because you like wearing camouflage shit doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person that's going to reject me and my style so i'm trying to like sc- i think it's a combination of the media and from your personal experiences and kind of how society has kind of adopted this whole, oh, rednecks look a certain way or certain supporters of some political party look a certain way and so on and so forth. And they have a certain belief and certain things that they enjoy. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like and a certain level of intelligence, too, or lack thereof. Yeah. And, and that's that's not always the case, you know, so. No. But no, we we did good, and um, you know, we we booked another show in, in St. Augustine, which is a city next to Jacksonville, and um, that's going to be at an actual. Pretty like, soon, you'll have your own cult. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, the cult of <laughs> dancing with ghosts, where basically everybody just bitches about their mental illnesses to each other. Um, <laughs> that's what my cult would be. Um, so yeah, this is the Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries podcast. We usually talk about the show Unsolved Mysteries, except for this month we want to take a little break. But don't worry, folks, I've been actually watching Unsolved Mysteries again because I took a little hiatus. But I've been watching it again, and I've been, you know, I've been jotting down a bunch of cases I want to talk about. So when we get back into covering Unsolved Mysteries, then we'll, we'll be all fresh and anew. If you want to join our Facebook group and keep up with our community i feel like i can call it a community at this point because it's grown to that that size and there's actual interaction going on uh go to facebook and go to the search bar and and type in uncovering unexplained mysteries you should be able to decipher the group page from just our normal fan page the fan page sucks don't don't even fuck with that it's 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 useless facebook is like (laughs) they're like the mafia if you post anything on an actual fan page and you want your fans who like the page to see it, you have to actually pay them money 
to push your status update into everyone's feed. I, I shit you not. I mean, it's crazy. But a group is a much more intimate setting where everybody can see what's posted instantly and everyone can interact and all that shit. Mm -hmm. So anyway, if you want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. You usually get the podcast early. I have to start adding that disclaimer in there. And you get bonus segments, which I'm way, you guys are way overdue for a bonus segment. So I'm going to be doing that uh, here soon as well. And there's some other benefits. You can go check that out. Anyway. Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Last week, we talked about part one, which was pretty much covering Jim Jones's rise to becoming an evangelical preacher, his um, his poverty as a child, his uh, proclivity to gravitate towards the black community. Um, oh, and, oh, and a little thing called, you know, sodomy. You know, that too. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was getting to that. I was going to try to finesse that into the conversation, but Mike just went and busted it out, so hopefully nobody's got this on speaker <laughs> at the dinner table right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that definitely happened. Uh, as Jim Jones's church grew, you know, and, and it was a multi-racial, multicultural church, which, you know, as me and Mike commented last week, we won't, we won't take that away from him. That's one area that Jim Jones was actually a pretty progressive guy. You know, he was very big into integrating uh, the races at a time when that was not an easy or popular thing. But at some point, Jim Jones started fucking his church members in the ass. Yeah. And started making statements that everybody was gay except him. And so his... Uh his uh, personal pleasure for, uh, you know, thinking about fucking his congregation in the ass grew as well as, as, as the congregation grew. So, at first, his church started out in, uh, what was it, Indianapolis or something like that. And then they moved to Ukiah, California, because they thought, mm -hmm. ah, Indianapolis is too racist. We need to go to California, the promised land. The church... Well, also because they thought they'd uh, go there because that was listed in some article that talked about one of the best places to go to in the event of a nuclear attack. Yes, that would be one of the places that would uh, survive. So so even then, you already start to see like a little tinge, a little hint of yeah. Jim Jones' paranoia. Uh -huh. um, so... Now we are moving on. We are resuming this uh, chapter uh, of, or the next chapter rather, which are the San Francisco years, which are from mm -hmm. 1974 to 1977. Um, so you have Jim Jones. He pretty much realizes that ultimately Ukiah was not the sort of climate where the People's Temple would thrive, and he wasn't going to be gaining large numbers of members. He couldn't declare himself to be a socialist god openly, certain and certainly in a city like Ukiah. Now, everything that me and Mike are reading to you right now, these are all quotes from former members of the People's Temple. They either escaped the thing that's going to happen here in the future. Or they quit. Or they quit before they went to Jonestown. So they're all former members that we're quoting. I just didn't have the time to just write down every single name of every single person. But if it's not a former member of the People's Temple, I do make note of that, so we will let you know if it's somebody else speaking. So you can take it from Marshall Kilduff. Okay, all right. So Marshall Kilduff uh, is a, a journalist, and he's quoted here. 
In San Francisco, Jones walked in on a sort of wild kind of party where there was a lot of new faces and new sources of power. And there was a sort of feeling that smaller groups, neighborhood groups, activist groups had a bigger chance. I think the early 60s had been a time of great optimism. There was a belief that we could change the world through social movements with various assassinations, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. There was definitely a feeling of hopelessness. The message of People's Temple was, no, the dream is alive. If you had a demonstration in San Francisco and you wanted people to show up, Jim Jones, the People's Temple, could be there in 20 minutes with hundreds of people. And we would be enthusiastic. And there was an attitude of, we can change the world. And that's what we wanted to do. And that that that's pretty good. Uh, that's that's uh, a nice feather to have in your cap to be able to... More people would be willing to associate with your group and with your uh, cult because we need people for our protests. We need people to show up. And nowadays I don't, I don't think you can get that as easily I, I don't think so the, the, like it has to be a part of a specific group like you can't ask people from this other group to come to your protest the spirit of uh, protesting is something that I feel like has definitely gone down in this country over the years I don't know if it's a laziness or a too much distraction from social media and our gadgets and all, but it seemed like there was more of a spirit of protest when things were fucked up in government, you know, back in the day than there is now. Well, people still protest, but they do it in ways that are just kind of dumb and and just not really helping things. Like when, in, when uh, Trump was elected, there was this fucking stupid shit going on in Portland and they were trying to, I guess, protest it. But it just, they caused damage and caused all kinds of stuff and, you know, shut down the max lines. And it was just one of those, it's like, you're not helping your cause. You're just making, you just look like a bunch of dicks, really. It's not really, what are you protesting? How, how are you going to stop anything? It's, it's, what's done is done. And especially the people who didn't even vote. Like, you, did you actually vote? If you didn't vote, then what, what, what are you even protesting? <laughs> I mean... For fuck's sake. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't even know. I, I For me, like, protesting, I, I don't know. It just, uh, shit have to get, would have to get really fucked up for me to want to protest something. That's the level of laziness that we're talking about with me. Um, I, I barely like leaving my house to go and well, get Well, yeah, food. for me, too. I, I admit it. I, I'm lazy as hell. Like, yeah. it, it, if I'm going to protest, it better be, like, something I'm really, really passionate about or something that affects me greatly in a way that I I feel like I have to gain control of it or stop it from happening. And if it's something's already happened, what am I going to do about yeah. it? And for me, you know, to be honest, the protest would have to start at around 2 p.m., you know, 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. If they're talking a.m. hours, like, sorry, guys, I can't I can't make it, bro. I mean, good <laughs> luck to you. And but going back to the People's Temple when they would organize, these people would be on time. They'd be polite and nice. There were a span of ages, a span of races. They were tailor-made for a political rally. To a politician, it was like a birthday cake times 12. Exactly. So now, it's an advantage. Now we have Jim Jones being interviewed by Willie Brown, California State Assemblyman. Um, 
And he goes on to say, You have managed to make the many persons associated with People's Temple part of a family. If you are in need of health care, you get health care. If you are in need of legal assistance of some sort, you get that. If you're in need of transportation, you get that. And that's kind of a religious thing that I am excited about and I have respect for. Sorry, I took that, that paragraph by accident. It's okay. It's, not, it's no problem. When vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale came to San Francisco, Jim Jones was a part of the entourage that boarded his private jet. When Rosalind Carter came to San Francisco, she gave Jim Jones a private audience. Jim Jones had political power that few people, let alone preachers, could have imagined. And that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially if he's sodomizing his uh, congregation. Jim Jones represented the People's Temple as a progressive movement that was threatened. Uh, that there were outside forces who didn't want us to do what we were doing. And it was the government. The government was infiltrating and wiretapping and trying to kill people or assassinate people. That's what was happening. He was always paranoid that someone was going to get in and try to kill him. That they had two people that had dedicated their lives, that they were going to jump in front of Jones and take the bullet. Kind of like the Secret Service, so to speak. Jim started changing a lot in the 70s. He was taking drugs. I think he said it was his kidneys at the time. And he was getting more and more paranoid. Incredibly paranoid. That's incredibly scary. <laughs> and, and worrisome. For someone who already has these tendencies that are showing that he's already starting to slip uh, out of reality... I mean, earlier in this documentary, didn't some some young woman in college talk about how, you know, she had gotten off drugs because of Jim Jones yeah. and now Jim Jones is doing drugs? Uh, uh -huh. Red flag, you know. Exactly. There was always threats. Always, always, always threats. They were there. They were just about to try to destroy us if we weren't always vigilant about our movement. There was a fire in the San Francisco temple. The temple was burned down and had to be rebuilt. The fire proved they are out to get us. They so don't want us to do what we are doing. They've burned down the temple. They'll do anything to keep us from doing what we are doing. So we have to be even stronger. And then I got to take this Jim Jones quote here. What about the fact that the Ku Klux Klan has increased 100 times in its membership? Where? Not Mississippi. I'm talking about New York State. It's the church's duty to have a place of protection for its people. December of 75, 90 of us went by plane into Guyana and saw where we were building the community there. Jim Jones is quoted by saying, See, they've made progress on the road and leveled it, clearing it to five miles, and you're seeing in the distance housing complexes that are being built. What I saw that creation as being was building a city where we could move and raise our children outside of the oppression and the racism of the United States of America. When I first went into Jonestown, it was just a footpath in the rainforest. We had Indians in front of us with machetes, and we had Indians behind us with machetes. 300 miles into the jungle, we literally built a city in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere. That's also pretty impressive. I mean, that's another impressive feat that... Uh, Jim Jones was able to accomplish, uh, very similar to uh, Rajneesh in Wild Wild Country. He, he also built a commune in, in the middle of nowhere. Um, but that was in the, uh, I was uh, in the hills in Oregon. So uh, Mike Touchette, as a young man in Guyana, speaking into the camera, he's quoted here. Hello, family. 
it's been uh it's been such a joy and great pleasure being here because of father's love we're trying to make and we are making a place of refuge for all of you here there is no nothing at all that i would that that i have any holdings here i i do not want to go back in any way shape or form to the states i love it here and this is the place where all of you are going to be and the quote the quote is just so like it sounds like he has a gun pointed to his head it does it, it really does it's off screen you know it's like hello family it's been a it, it it's been such a joy and a great pleasure being here because of father's love father's butt love that's a special kind of love so pretty soon we were seeing f film footage of the first crew that went down there. We all wanted to go. I wanted to go. It, it looked like, like freedom. And Jim Jones is qu quoted as saying, Now will each of you give a very fond embrace, a salutary kiss of greeting to your neighbor, and let's fill this atmosphere with warmth and love. Not not a pat pat on the shoulder, not, not shaking hands, not, not a little hug or something. A salutary kiss, you know. I don't know if you. I, I've never been to a church where it's like, "Hey, get to know your neighbor, kiss them right on the lips." I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That's not the weirdest thing. That 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 doesn't weird me out that much, especially with how in in died in the wool they were at that point. It was kind of like no, I know, you know, but I mean, it's still it just it's another crazy weird thing that that Jim Jones did. And had people do inside. Well, of his it's cult. it's his. He definitely had a command of the English language in a different way than yeah. most people would. The the things he says are definitely a little bit all. They're always on the grandiose side. He can't just yeah, make. But it's also a little bit weird. I mean, I'm sorry. Like just kissing random people on the lips. I I just I it's. Mike, the first time I strange. the first time I ever meet you, I'm gonna kiss you on the lips. <laughs> and what's going to make it even weirder is we're going to be in a broom closet. <laughs> Uh, okay. So I guess you're, we're going to play a game of spin the bottle with just uh, you and I? No, is, no, is it's going to be, it's gonna be go? it's gonna be seven minutes in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> or, or hell, depending on how it turns out. Uh, so we thought of ourselves as one big family that did handle our own discipline. I was in a lot of the meetings where people were spanked or beaten, and I... I was slapped once also in a public meeting. Now that's that takes it even like crazier. Like that takes it into the danger zone. Like this is this is like oh kissing each other on the lips. Okay, all right, that's weird. But like this is like okay, this is just really fucked up and disturbing. But, I mean, just publicly just beating people in front of other people. Yeah, I mean when you're talking about full grown ass adults getting spanked. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what the fuck? I know. So then someone else goes on to say, people were brought up front and asked, and they had to tell who they had slept with and who they had sneaked off to a restaurant with. That's freedom? Because that sure doesn't sound like freedom to me. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, and that's, see, that's that's where the, the, the stranglehold and the manipulation starts to really... You know, now we're seeing that, like, yes, at first they were having to work, you know, 20 hours, you know, a, a, a day and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, but it, there was always this, it was for the common good. So, you know, you kind of felt like you were doing a good thing, even though it was really hard work. And now uh -huh. we're getting into 
uh, Jim assuming this much more demagogue like fit like role where he is no longer suggesting that I can be your father if you want a father I can be your friend if you want a friend I can be your I god. am your father now he's yes now he's saying I am a god I am uh, uh, you know a higher an elevated I, being I wonder what Darth Vader's cult would be like you know because uh, you know because you're, you're bringing up like that I am your father thing because I'm just like you know no, Luke, I am your father. Yeah, I don't know. I think that they made a whole like series of movies about the whole, uh, <laughs> you know, what Darth Vader ended up doing there, Mike. I don't. I don't think he had a cult, though. I mean, the the uh, the what the dark side or the the yeah the it's dark not really side. His thing. Kind of, no, dark side was a cult. Dark side was totally a cult. Luke joined so the, the Dark Jedi. Side. So the so the Jedi are a cult movement too. Like you're gonna get so many Star Wars nerds are gonna be like, yeah, I've already tried. Zach, Zach, <laughs> if you're out there listening right now, I'm sorry, buddy. I'm 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 back at, I'm backing out of this topic as uh, quickly. If you guys, if anybody out there likes Star Wars, check out the Knights of Vader podcast. Uh, one of our friends yeah, uh, of the podcast. Uh, he's he's he does a podcast about Star Wars, and I, I enjoy listening to it. I endorse it. God damn it. So all right. Um, so he would ask people, what do you think we ought to do with them? Do you think they ought to get a good boxing? And then he'd get a resounding roar. Yes. Because they have to say yes, probably. You know, yeah. if someone was like, no, fuck that. That's crazy. You know, then that person's getting a boxing too, whatever the fuck a boxing yeah. is. So the boxing match. They put on boxing gloves. <laughs> they get in a little ring. There's a little there's a little guy. That who rings the bell? They got like a girl who walks out with a scorecard. Yeah, Mike, uh, you're, you know, you're literally describing a boxing match right now. I think everybody know you could have just said boxing match. I think everybody would have. Uh... Yeah, I, I was trying to be. Mike, I'm sorry if I'm stifling your creativity, but we, I mean, we just know what a boxing match is. You know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't need so much elaboration. Is all I'm saying. I'm trying to give visuals. Okay, <laughs> Mike's painting. A, That's what Mike's I'm trying painting a to fucking do. picture. And I'm just being a yes. fucking stick in the mud. <laughs> so uh, they go on to say, you might fight five people in one night. Well, well, you know, you're very tired. I've seen situations where they actually knocked the person out and actually took water, threw water back on him, woke him up, and whooped him some more. <laughs> <laughs> I know I shouldn't laugh at that, but it's just that, that it's just that level of overkill. Yes, that level of overkill. It's just so is ridiculous just, and over the top. It is. You can't help but to kind of laugh at it at, at the over the top, you know, nature. Yeah, I had welts really bad, and when I went to work the next day, one of my employees noticed the welts when I sat down, and I just broke down and told her. She didn't even know I was People's Temple, and she called the manager of the station up, and they talked to me about leaving. I couldn't say goodbye to my son or my husband because that at that point it was like the Gestapo. The families are turning in each other. If I said goodbye, one of them would have reported me. So that's exact same culture in Scientology. If you yes. are deep into Scientology, disassociation. Well, uh, they 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 write disconnect. They write knowledge reports on each other constantly. Like, and yep. and you'll have kids writing knowledge reports on the parents. Parents writing knowledge reports mm -hmm. on the kids. Friends, boyfriends, all writing each other up. You know, if, if anyone steps out of line or says anything suppressive um, and you yeah. get and you get, you know, punishment for that, you know, so this is very, you know, the control mechanisms. It's all very, 
you know, just cla- before it was it was looking kind of culty with a chance of crazy. Now it is full blown monsoon of cult. Um, so it's kind of like when you get married and you have this ideal and you're, you know, you're, you're in love and then, you know, the honeymoon wears off and reality sets in. And most people, once the going gets rough, don't jump out immediately. That's a good point, actually, to yeah, compare it to a it marriage. Is. Cause yeah, that and one, yeah, I, I think that's quite poignant, actually. Is that really is relatable yeah? Because like, to a lot dude, how many people do you know? I, I shit, I can name at least a dozen people I know that that are stuck in marriages that they don't really want to be in. That's well, I mean, my mom, like, she actually got out of it early because she realized that her and my dad, like, it wasn't really that compatible and it really wasn't working that well. So they both uh, left. They both uh, decided, okay, it's better for us to go our separate ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, that whole thing of people being stuck in that relationship, I mean, that's gotta be a really, uh, it's gotta be pretty shitty and almost like a form of torture. Like every day you're just like, you're stuck with this woman or this man who you don't love, you can't stand. And a lot of it also is relationship problems because, you know, there are people who they get married because they have, they have this sexual attraction to each other and they have like just great sex and so on and so forth but they don't really have that much else in common you know there's not really a lot of thing other things that they like to do together or that they're they're not really friends so once that sexual attraction wears off and it does like that that that's actually a proven thing like after a certain amount of time each your uh intercourse with that person it, it it becomes less and less arousing and you become less and less aroused by that person so it's one of those things it's like once that wears off and that chemical reaction is no longer there they don't have that love drug so to speak now people are like sitting there just being like wow i i don't like you you know it's like i hate you and then they get divorced it's it's uh I, I that's why I feel relationships should be they're not sex ships they're relationships there's too much of this uh, stigma that's associated with people you know who are friends it's that whole friend zone thing that actually might be the best person for you is the person who can be your friend for life you know it's I I don't I don't understand I will say that the the that the two things that have worked for me in my longest relationships have been a when I was friends with the person for a long ass time yes. before we ever dated, and B, uh-huh. we had we had a shit ton of similar interests and goals, like exactly. those two things right there. Well, and physical attraction, of course, but like yeah. as far as like a long lasting, deep, meaningful relationship, being getting to really know the person. Uh, for a long time, you know, like months and months and months before you make it quote unquote official and also having the same goals, same interests and all that. Yeah. That's how you that's how you really I mean, there's a dude, we could do a whole fucking podcast on this shit. But anyway, that was, <laughs> that was a good analogy a uh, per- person that used to be in people's temple. Yeah. In one planning commission meeting, Jim was getting notes, kind of love notes from one of the members of the planning commission. Jones is sitting there calmly, and so another lady said, well, I don't know why you keep doing that. 
What makes you think you've got something that he wants anyway? And so another woman says, well, you know what? You ought to just take off your clothes and show him what you got. You ain't got nothing. And so by this time, they look back to Jones. And so he looks over his glasses and he nods with approval. Yeah, that's a good idea. What a perv. I know, right? She was to be totally naked, and then she was down to nothing but her skin. Not even any shoes on, you know. No bra, no panties, no nothing. Then they begin to say what her breasts look like, her stomach, butt, vagina, you name it. Everything they could think of. And they were saying by this time her face is red, her body's almost red from embarrassment. And I noticed something. Jones was sitting, looking over his sunglasses. But he had a smile on his face. Like he really enjoys seeing this woman being torn down. There's a, I hate to keep bringing up Scientology, but there's a, numerous stories of these same exact things with David Miscavige. Mm-hmm. Not so much the, on the sexual nature, but of the him getting enjoyment out of people getting humiliated. That mental image of him smiling. I can see it in my mind. You know? I, I can see it in my mind too. Yeah. And it's just giving me the chills. I have a conscious memory of sitting there thinking to myself, this is wrong. And I didn't do a damn thing to stand up and say, this is wrong. That's the power of a cult. It's like a child in a dysfunctional family. On a certain level, it's normal, you know? I just kind of took everything in stride. But when we felt like we had gotten involved and gotten in so deep that it was actually no way out. I traveled on bus seven which was Jim's bus, and he sat down next to me. And I was sitting there, and I thought, that's weird. It smells like alcohol next to me. And he leaned over, and he said, do you know what you do to me? He had informed that I was to come in on bus 7, and there was a room in the back just for him. This is a lady who's interviewed here. Um, He had books. He had a desk. He had a bed. And when everyone got off the bus at the rest stop, I went into his little room, and I sat there, and I waited for him. And finally he opened the door, and without any talk or anything, he just pulled down his pants and and had sex with me. And as I lay there frightened, not sure what to do, and as I shivered, he'd say to me, this is for you. I'm doing this for you, Debbie. Oh my god, dude. Oh, get, o- get over yourself. Fuck this guy. Well, in 1975, it was a mayoral election in San Francisco. One of the candidates was a man named George Moscone. Jones had several hundred people who would go door to door on election day. Instead of that group, uh, instead of a group that might give you 20 or 30 people or 100, you had three or 400 people with uh, Jim Jones's flock. And the Moscone election was very close. The margin of victory was probably no more than 4,000. So you had to credit a big chunk of decisive votes to People's Temple. The the reward for the election of George Moscone was the appointment of Jim Jones as chairman of the City Housing Authority. Like, what what experience does he have to have that job? I mean, that happens a surprising amount in local government. If you look into it, you see a lot of that where people, like, they don't really have that much experience at all and they just know the right person or did a favor and now they have the position. It's like, why... Shouldn't we have people who actually know this stuff like the back of their own hand? Not some guy who's just there as a favor by the mayor. I, I just... 
Uh, that's just oh, Mike, sweet, innocent, stupid Mike. <laughs> Dang, that got her. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. That was weird. <laughs> what was once a really boring meeting all of a sudden became like really interesting when Jim Jones became the head of it because we all came down on the buses and we were instructed that when Jim came in, we stood. And when he left or spoke, we'd stand and clap. Yeah, and this is in reference to him coming in um, for the council meetings and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. When he'd come to speak, everyone was like, woo, and it made it seem like he was a fucking rock star. So a journalist goes on to say, the sheer staginess, the controlled atmosphere that sort of enclosed this guy made him so unusual, so different than the norm, that it made me very curious. My biggest problem was getting somebody to sort of talk to me about the church in kind of conversational terms. I had become friends with some of the various defectors, and one of the defectors told me that she was going to speak publicly about Jones. And I said to her, well, if you're going to speak publicly, I'm going to speak with you. I'm not going to let you do this alone. The journalist goes on. I finally heard from some ex-members who heard I was interested in writing a story about the temple for New West magazine. And they took a chance. They called me and some of them said, you know, you know, you know nothing about the church. Wait until I tell you what I went through. Before the article was going to break, Jim convinced the publisher that she needed to read it to him. He was on one phone and I was on taping the other end of it while somebody else listened on another one. Jim didn't understand that there was no way that he could talk her down from whatever this article was going to say. That just sounds so Jim Jones, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Like he's so far up his own ass that he think he doesn't get that he can't talk down a fucking recording. <laughs> and as she continues to read this article, he's looking around the room at about five of us, and you could tell that he's becoming more and more anxious. And as you know, his mouth becomes drier and drier. And he realizes that this article is going to be hugely damning. And it was midway through it, he mouths to all of us in the room, we're leaving tonight. They flew out to Guyana six hours before that article was going to hit. And that is the end of the San Francisco chapter. And, and it was at that point that all of Jim Jones' bullshit that he was doing to these people throughout the years had come back in spades to bite him in the ass and it was at that point that I believe that Jim Jones made the decision, I'm going to kill all these people one day, all my congregation and myself. It's just a matter of yep. time. Mm -hmm. Because, he, you know, what, look at what he was doing. He was raping people. He was doing, you know, he was high out of his mind probably most of the time. He was this... Uh, megalomaniacal just ruler who was just getting a high off the power and all the luxuries mm -hmm. that that afforded him and like any other human being he couldn't handle it and he fucking folded like a cheap suit so now we get to the Jonestown the, the last era of Jim Jones of the Jim Jones saga from 19 the meat of this the, cult the, stew yes what everybody talks about when you talk about Jim Jones from 1977 to 1978 when Jim Jones decided that there was too much pressure too much trouble to stay in San Francisco he ordered the move to Jonestown and it happened almost overnight 
People were being taken to airports. There were people who were packing their belongings and leaving their homes with virtually no explanation to their family members as to where they were going or why they were going. Fred Lewis came home and found that his wife had taken their seven children and gone to Guyana along with all their possessions. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in his shoes? Like, that would suck, man. That would be awful. And there would be nothing you could do. You can't contact your wife and your kids. You don't know what how you're gonna. You're not. I don't know how you're gonna see them or write to them or anything. They're just gone, and all of their possessions. Like everything is gone. It's like your family just suddenly just disappeared. And it's not like that movie Home Alone where Kevin said, "I wish you'd all just disappear," and then they left him home alone. Because they were dumb and didn't double check things and whatever. And make sure their son was in the car before they went to the airport. <laughs> they actually fucking disappeared into thin air. I would like to think but, that if I was this guy, you know, if I was this Fred guy, that, that I would have been keeping better tabs on what my wife was doing at this church that led, yeah. led up to all this. You know, I'd like to think I wouldn't be the husband that but, would just be blindsided then again, by this crazy. He might only know what he knows. Like his wife not might not tell him everything. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the story is with that. So my wife had gone over three months prior, and I was waiting on pins and needles. And I was talking to her probably twice a week on the hand radio. And Leona Collier came up and said, "Okay, Eugene, it's your time. You're coming over." Coming into Jonestown, you see a guard at the front gate, and you're all excited. You're going down this road. The trailer comes to a stop, and then you can see the wooden pathway that leads to the pavilion. And you're just, you just want to run. But you know, you just try. All right, I'm going to be cool. And just as you reach the edge of the pavilion, people started rushing, they, rushing you that you knew. You know, my wife was there. I haven't seen my mother in over a year or so, and I'm just hugging people, and it's just like, it's like, I have arrived, and everything is going to be okay now. So now it shows an archival clip of member Tim Carter in Guyana speaking into a microphone. He's saying, I have never been so totally happy or fulfilled in my life. I can't begin to describe it. You could sit here and talk all day long, and no words could describe the peace, the beauty, the sense of accomplishment and responsibility and camaraderie that's here. It's, it's overwhelming. It, it really is. You can't describe I it. I think that's something that definitely is in common with a lot of these cults that end up having their own communities is that particular quote, that feeling that like it's, it's, it's peaceful, it's great, it's, it's wonderful, it's, it's beautiful, it's paradise, but it's nothing but. Right. In reality, it, it's it's not even remotely close to that. But maybe it might have started out like that. And then Jim Jones started to show more of his psychotic tendencies and, you know, the moments when he'd just be on drugs and start speaking through the loudspeaker at all times, which we'll get to that as well. So I, I think, yeah. So, you know, it's just such an exciting time. Everything was new and unique and and just fun, you know? We just had fun with it as a group. I, I just love that we created what we ate and that we did all these jobs. And then it cuts to Jim Jones' son. When you don't have anything, you own Jonestown. You are a part of Jonestown. You were a shareholder of Jonestown. If you were African-American, 
it gave them the opportunity to to really be a part of creating a utopia. Man being interviewed for a news program. I think that Jim Jones took his group down there because he was afraid to face a publicity and answer the questions here in this country. I don't think that he feels confident having people talk to their relatives. I think the only way he can survive and sustain what he started is to isolate all his followers from this country and from their families. Then a ju- and that guy was right on the money. Yeah, and that journalist goes on to say, the concerned relatives were the ex-members who wanted other family members still in the church to know they could leave. They wanted them to feel that there was an outside world, that Jones was wrong about telling people they could never leave the church, and that they would be treated badly in the real world. Now, when I say concerned relatives, it's it's in you know it's a proper name for a group. It's the concerned relatives. I guess like a group of people who were uh, mm-hmm. out of the church or never were in the church, but they had relatives yeah. in the church still. So the concerned relatives prompted the FCC investigation of the People's Temple. They organized letter-writing campaigns to public officials, to members of Congress, and they were incredibly effective in mobilizing government and media interest in the People's Temple. And they show archival footage of a former member saying, he was talking integration, he was talking helping people, he was talking better this and better that. What, what about now? What's your impression now? My impression now that those are fronts for him. I think he's going crazy. When Jim Jones wasn't there, things tended to be a little bit lighter. You know, people would be dancing or singing. There would be music in different cottages. But when Jones was present, it was very, very dark. It was almost like a dark cloud. It's another great quote. In Jonestown, there was a speaker system, and only Jim spoke on it. And it went 24 hours a day, and he would tape himself. So in the middle of the night, all through the night, his voice was talking to you. That would just drive you <laughs> nuts. Like you'd never be able to escape it. Then they got then they got this motherfucker like a clip of him actually talking over this speaker system. Uh-huh. The United States is calling for the removal of all blacks and Indians. So is England. They want to have their immigrant black Indian population removed in six months. Yeah, so just making up a bunch of bullshit. Uh, at least he has a voice that isn't ear grating. Can you imagine if like Fran Drescher was in your ear uh, for 24 hours? The United States <laughs> is calling for the removal of all blacks and Indians. <laughs> so is England. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> I'd just be like, "Fuck, where's where's the where's the lake? I'm just gonna go take a swim forever." <laughs> uh, we had no other radio or TV or communication with parents or any kind of you know, update that could show us really that there's a whole other thing going on besides what Jim was interpreting for us. Jim Jones over the speaker again. I make my stand clear. Give us our liberty or give us our death. At least on those terms, we choose death and no one chooses it for us. Don't try to take any of our children. See, he he always he keeps focusing on the children thing. And... And also the deaf. You can hear it right here, the whole deaf thing. Give us our liberty or give us our death. We choose our death. He's speaking for everyone in the community. How would it be to, like, be in that community before the shit hits the fan? You hear stuff like that, and, you know, you're talking to a, another member who just arrived, and the other member was like, what the fuck is that? It's like, oh, don't worry, Jim Jones, he always says that. It, it's a tape that plays 24 hours constantly. Uh, you'll get used to it. Like, <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs> so no matter where you were you could hear you could hear it in your in your bunk at night you could hear it when you're in the outhouse 
You could hear it when you're working in the field. You you could hear it all the time. Now that that would really suck. Like I need peace and quiet when I'm taking a shit. Like really. Yeah. Like I need I, I need like I, you just hear Jim Jones talking about <laughs> you know give us liberty or give us our death. Yeah, it's like could you shut the fuck up, dude? I'm trying to pinch one off real quick, man. It's like really I need peace at this time. I need concentration. You know. So there was this pervasive sense of being under attack in Jonestown. He told them that things were just getting worse in the United States. They couldn't go back home. And not only that, but these forces were traveling to Guyana to destroy them there. And then you got Jim Jones quoted here as saying, You can't know how much of a conspiracy there is in the U.S. these days. Maybe it's economics. Who knows what it is? I'm not able to say, but I do know it's real. It's obvious that Martin Luther King was murdered by conspiracy. Malcolm X, Senator Kennedy. I love he's just like, I don't know what it is. I'm not able to say. Who knows what it is? I'm not able to say, but I do know what's real. <laughs> like, that's an oxymoron. Over the summer of 1978, all of us noticed it, that Jim seemed to be getting sicker. His harangues over the loudspeaker were getting more and more frantic and really just sounding more and more insane. I had to look up what harangue meant, and it's actually a pretty cool word that I want to like use yeah. in my everyday vocabulary it's it's like a, a a loud angry impassioned speech that's a harangue um that that's totally fits jim jones yeah. at this point so he had gone to the place that even his voice was becoming slurred and he said it was because the nurse was giving him the wrong medications but yet still every day it was getting worse and worse much like in the end of uh the World War II days, Hitler was in his bunker just being injected with heroin left and right. Yeah. Uh, because he was, you know, he was lo he was at the end of his fucking wits. Mm hmm That's what it reminds me of. Every night at some point, his voice would come over to the loudspeaker and he'd say, I'm sending somebody out tonight. Somebody you know, somebody you trust, and they're going to act like they want to leave. But this is a loyalty test and you need to turn them in. A father would turn in a son, a husband would turn in a wife, a small child would turn in a parent. There was no freedom to express to one another what was going on because everything was suspect. The most forbidden thing to express was to leave. Jim Jones's son is quoted here. He had a real issue with separation. People could not leave him. He took it as betrayal to the cause and to him personally. Then they show an archival scene from Guyana. It's Jim Jones saying... Uh, he said, I, I really want to get away from him. By Christmas, I will be gone. By Christmas, do you want to be gone? By Christmas, do you want to be gone? I would ask you, could I go home and make a trip to see my people? I have the power to send you home by Christmas. But it's not on Transworld Airlines. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to talk about going back when you have not been given any approval. Do you want to go home? And then the man goes, no. Well, then be seated and shut your mouth and don't be in my face anymore. That was a really uh, rough clip to watch because that, that just shows you that he's gone all the way down that rabbit hole. Like he's he's not he has no faculties anymore. He's just totally uh, psychotic and you just feel so badly for the people who were under his grip. And, you know, he does. That guy clearly wanted to go home. And it was like an older man. He's like, do you, I, I just want to see my family. It was like, we want to go home? And I, you know, I, I, but I'm not going to send you home on Transport Airlines. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, send you home in a body bag, basically. 
And and the guy's just like, no, I don't want to go home. But really, he does. You can tell he wants to leave. Jackie Spear, age Congressman Leo Ryan. Congressman Ryan was unique in the political sphere. He had this hands-on approach to legislating. He just didn't take no for an answer. So when he was in the state assembly, he went to Folsom State Prison and spent a week as an inmate to understand the prison issues and prison reform. He became concerned because a member of residence in San Mateo County had become members of the People's Temple, and family members started contacting him, concerned about where their whereabouts, about their whereabouts, and concerned about whether or not that they were being held against their will. The word we were getting was that there was an armed encampment. It was enough for a congressman to say, you know what, I want to find out for myself. Now, this congressman, Congressman Ryan, uh, to me, from what I saw in this documentary, seemed like a really one-of-a-kind politician. Yeah. The type of politician that was for the people. He was willing to take risks. He was uh, very passionate about change. And it's really a shame what happened to him. And it's a shame that we don't have more politicians like this today. There's I know. a lot of politicians that seem to just join in just for the free ride. That's really all it is. It's like, I'm going to be a part of Congress for a bit and then retire, and then I'm going to be set for life. It's not necessarily about passion, or they actually want to be in politics, or they actually want to change things, or so on and so forth. It's more about, eh, I want to do it so I can get you know that free ticket. Yeah, I was I was rooting like a motherfucker a for Congress. Congress for Congressman Ryan in this documentary. I was like, I was yeah. like man, please don't let anything bad happen to this guy. Mm-hmm. So, from a former People's Temple member, there was a lot of preparation for Congressman Ryan's visit. There are all these different scenarios that were presented. He wasn't going to let him in. He was going to let him in. We were going to wait for them to come in and then we're going to kill them all when they came in. And uh, Jackie Spears quoted again, I was very fearful about making the trip. I had a copy of the congressman's will and placed it in a particular drawer in my desk just in case. So then it cuts to Stephen Song, who was a sound technician that went with the congressman and Jackie Spear when they flew into Guyana. And he was quoted as saying, we flew in sometime in the afternoon at about 6 p.m. We saw this beautiful sign. Welcome to Jonestown. And, and I, they showed the sign and it's really not that beautiful. I don't know. No. It's kind of ghetto looking, honestly. <laughs> Tim Reiterman, journalist, uh, is quoted here. As we approached Jonestown, it was Spartan, but very impressive. Jackie Spear. How could you not be impressed that out of the jungles of Guyana, they had carved out a community? They had crops growing. They had cabins. They had a little medical clinic, a little daycare area. Archival clips showing Jim Jones showing off all the food and supplies that they had. Flour, rice, black-eyed peas, more peas. We have different containers surrounding the place. We couldn't go through all the tremendous inventory they built up. Kool-Aid, which was very ominous. Yes. November 17th, 1978. When Ryan came, he came on a Friday night and we put on a reception for him. The songs that we sang that night, it was people saying, this is who we are and this is what we are about. Jackie Spear. It was a vibrant community. I would have never imagined that 24 hours later, those people would be dead. I I couldn't either, because watching the documentary, just seeing that juxtaposition of that, of... The people dancing and singing and then saying that 24 hours later, these people would be dead. You're like, oh my God, what? <laughs> yeah. Everything was up to that point. Everything up to that point was was good. 
Everybody was thrilled that Ryan was thrilled. He just kind of praised us. Archival footage of Leo Ryan saying, I think that all of you know that I am here to find out more about uh, your questions have been raised about your operations here. And I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that whatever these comments are, they are some of the people here who believe that this is the best thing they've ever had in their whole lives. And then everyone just bursts into, woo, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're so happy that they yeah. got this guy's approval. They're probably just glad that, you know, Jim Jones wasn't going to be a dick after this. You know, oh, this ought to make, you know... El Jefe happy, you know. That so just be like, woo, Jim Jones is not going to be an asshole. It's going to fucking me in the ass later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to bust out the lube tonight. Wet, yay. <laughs> that response to him was spontaneous. It was loud. It was emotional. What I was feeling was, this is an opportunity that I can vocalize how much I believe in what we're doing here. The reporter next to me said, I've never felt anything like this before. And I said, because you haven't felt anything like this before. I actually felt pretty good overall. This went probably as well as it could possibly go so far. When, Con when Congressman Ryan came, I wanted to pass him a note that said, help us get out of Jonestown. Dun, dun, dun. When one of the reporters was walking around towards the edge of the pavilion, I stuck the note in the fold of his arm and it fell to the ground. And so I picked up the note and I, and I gave it back to him. And I said, you, you dropped something. And then this little boy, about nine years old, started saying, he passed a note, he passed a note. That little bitch. Oh, I would have loved to yeah. slap that little kid. Like, you know, it's very foreboding and and uh, intense in this instance, but like in any other instance, passing a note, like that you just think of stuff that happens in, in high school or whatever, you know, that's all you really think of. Or, or like the teacher's pet who just like, fucking rats on somebody like, he passed a note he passed a note teacher he passed a note he's trying to cheat he's cheating <laughs> but here it's like it's a lot more serious yes jackie spear she's quoted here uh don harris who was the nbc reporter came up to me and congressman ryan and handed us these two notes from people that wanted to leave so at that point we knew that something was very very wrong November 18th, 1978. I was like the first to rise up the following morning. It was a bright, sunny day, but it was a dark day. It just didn't feel right. Sound tech guy. We were there supposed, uh, supposedly to interview some of the family members to ask them why they cannot leave. Archival footage of people being interviewed at Jonestown. Are you happy here? Oh, I should say I am. I've never been happier in my life. Do you want to stay? Definitely. I certainly do. Some people have said they couldn't leave if they wanted to. Do you think you could? Yeah. If I wanted to go, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm free to go. If I, if I really wanted to, I would be free to go. Well, I, I believe it. I, I've been here a few days and I have, I have absolutely no complaints at all. It is really nice here. It, it is really nice. And I'll be leaving in a couple weeks and they could come with me, but they said they didn't want to come. I think it was a mother, I think, who, uh, who was interviewed there. Uh, literally, out of nowhere, the storm came blowing in. The sky turned black. The wind came up, and it just torrential rained. But what I personally felt was that evil itself blew into Jonestown. 
That was just such a phenomenal quote. Yes. It was about 11.30 in the morning. Edith Parks walked up to Jackie Spear and said, I'm being held prisoner here. I want to go home. Immediately, the whole vibe changed. I mean, this reporter said, we got our story, you know? The story's here. It's happening right now. Jim Jones came to talk to me, and the first thing he said was, don't say anything to, to the reporters. They're all liars. And the last words I heard from Jim Jones was, I just want you to know that you can come back to Jonestown to visit your son anytime you want. So then it shows this archival footage of a reporter's interaction with Jim Jones, and it shows the reporter handing Jim the note. And he goes, uh, last night someone came and passed this note to me. And Jim Jones goes, uh, he, he's the one that, uh, that I was just talking about. Th this is the man that wants to leave his son here. And then the reporter says, doesn't that concern you, though, that this man, for whatever reason, one of the people in your group? And then Jim Jones interrupts. Pe people play games, friend. They lie. They lie. What can I do about liars? Are, are you are you people going to leave us? I just I, I just beg you, please leave us. Bill, we will bother nobody. Anybody wants to get out of here can. They can get out of here. They have no problem about getting out of here. They come and go all the time. I don't know what kind of games people like who who people like publicity, you know? Some people do. I don't. But some people like publicity. But if it's so damn bad, why is he leaving his son here? Can you can you give me a good reason for that? That is a, that is a very interesting thing. Like that's definitely an intriguing uh, part to the story. The whole leaving his son there. I, I think that ties into the whole uh, grip that the cult had on him. That's why he's leaving his son there because his son wanted to be there. So I guess he just decided, all right, if that's how it is, then. So maybe maybe it, his but... son was that little bitch-ass nine-year-old who's like, he passed an out, he passed an out. <laughs> I don't think it was, but okay. Uh, Jackie Spear is quoted here, When word got out that people were leaving, all hell broke out. More people wanted to leave. And then Jim Jones started to make pleas to people saying, You can't leave. You're my people. Why do you want to leave? It was an emotional roller coaster for everyone there. Jones was in the pavilion, and at one point he said, Well... Of course you can go if you want, but clearly that was not the message. The message was, you are betraying me. I went and I spoke to the congressman in the pavilion. I told him, you are in extreme danger. You need to leave. And he said, you don't have anything to worry about. He says, you have the congressional shield of protection around you. And I just looked at him like he was totally insane. Yeah, because it's like, there are people with guns. Fucking arrows and shit. You're just the one guy with a sound tech in your aid, dude, and a helicopter. You, there's no shield of a protection. Plane, yeah, yeah. There's just a plane. Uh, there's no Captain America is not going to come over here and save you. Congressman Ryan was directly across from me when I saw this temple member walk up behind him, and he was actually crying and shaking. And then all of a sudden, he pulled out this knife, and he said, "All right, motherfucker, you're gonna die." We all jumped on him. And everywhere, there were just screams of horror. Jack, everywhere. Jackie Spear. We heard this great uproar in the pavilion in the truck stop. Then shortly thereafter, Congressman Ryan starts walking out in this bloodstained shirt. Journalist is quoted here. Those of us in the news media viewed Congressman Ryan as a form of protection, a shield of the United States. What happened there in those few moments made it clear that nobody was safe. I went back to my cottage. All I wanted to do was see my wife and my son. 
Glor- this is really sad. Gloria and I were laid down on the cot and we just held each other. And I said, you know, I think we may all die. And she said, she kind of looked at me and then she looked at our son who was playing on the floor with the toys and she said, you're scaring him. I had literally opened my mouth to say, we need to leave when there was an announcement on the loudspeaker. Will everybody report to the pavilion for a meeting? That just shows you how brainwashed his wife was. You know, he's talking about like, this is getting really, really serious. You know, we may all die. And then she's like, you're scaring the kid. (laughs) <laughs> sound tech guy we drove back to the airstrip Port Katuma and all of a sudden we saw a dump truck from far away arriving to the airstrip we realized these people catch up from people from Jim Jones and they're very close to tenant to Jim Jones and these three guys they get off the truck and they walk around this area as though they were looking for somebody they looked in people's faces they stared at us for a little bit they didn't say but they didn't say one word they didn't ask anything Right away, they walked back to the truck. They drove this truck all the way across the airstrip and stopped on the side of the plane. So they literally, they cut us off from the jungle. And we never know that there's people hidden inside the dump truck. The moment it stopped, they start shooting right away. Everybody ran toward the plane on the side of the plane and they tried to hide underneath the wheels. Jackie Spear. Then the congressman ran under the plane and I sort of followed suit and got behind one of the tires. Here's the sound tech guy again. All you can hear is a gun pop, pop, pop goes off constantly. We lie flat on the tarmac at that but at that moment. But shortly afterwards, I heard my partner, the cameraman, he yelled, Oh shit. He said he got he got shot. He was sitting up. Journalist was reported as here as saying They actually show that footage too. I yeah, think there's a cameraman. Yeah, yeah, they dude, they had extensive footage of all the stuff that happened. Uh surprisingly, you know, that, that That's happened. That's a pretty chilling uh bit of footage there because the cameraman's he's sitting there, he's got the he's, he's got the shot, and and then all the shot all of a sudden you hear uh, a loud bang and then the camera actually falls to the ground. Yeah and then yeah. goes to fuzz. And this yeah. isn't an action movie, this is real life people. So the jur- not Blur Witch Project, it's the, real. The journalist is uh, quoted as saying, there were people tumbling and yelling and letting out cries as they were hit. I was hitting my arm and wrist. Sound tech guy. I felt a tremendous explosion right next to my head. I got a tremendous pain that ran through my arm and on my shoulder. I was really shaking, but I didn't move. I took the pain and, and held and, and uh, hold still. Yeah, this guy's like, uh, English is not his first language, so mm-hmm. he's kind of, you know, it's not Mike's fault reading like it normally is. Uh, this guy, <laughs> this guy, uh, he, he didn't speak the best yeah. English, but it, you know, it was good. So Jackie Spears quoted as saying, I was lying on my side pretending that I was dead with my head down and they came and shot me at point blank range. Point oh, blank shit. range. I remember someone coming to me and telling me that Congressman Ryan was dead, but I was at a point where I didn't know how much more time I was going to be alive. Sound tech guys. The gun's dead and all we can hear is that this one engine was still running. And so all you could hear was the engine noise. And that's it. So now we go back to Jonestown. We walked up... This is a a former member. We walked up to the pavilion together with everyone else, with everybody else. It was very quiet. It was very somber. It was very sad. But it wasn't a death march. Jim, it might as well have been. <laughs> Jim Jones is, uh, then Jim Jones comes in. The congressman is dead. 
You think they're going to allow us to get by with this? You must be insane. They'll torture some of our children here. They'll torture our people. They'll torture our seniors. We cannot have this. Ugh. Just, just, it's that fucking quote. It's like, we cannot, we, we cannot have this. This cannot be. <laughs> he said, well, we gotta go. He said, we gotta get out of here. We, we got to, we gotta go to sleep. Get to, get the solution together. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. Ugh. Maria Katsaris walked up to him and whispered in his ear, and he looked at her and said, is there any way to make it taste less bitter? And she said, no. No, apparently not. And he said, is it quick? And she said, yeah. Supposed to be quick. Anyone that has any dissenting opinion, please speak. Then a church member speaks up. When we, when we destroy ourselves, we are defeated. We let them, the enemies, defeat us. And on the last day of Jonestown, Christine Miller stood up and said, I don't want to die here. This is a recorded exchange between Christine and Jim Jones. And I'll do the whole, I'll, we'll just go back and, I guess okay. we can go, yeah, we can go back, and back, and back and forth. Why are we going to throw this all the way, all the, all away? We've worked too hard. I look at all the babies and I think they deserve to live. I, I, I agree, but they also deserve, what, what's more, they deserve peace. We all came here for peace. Is it, is it too late for Russia? So she's calling Jim Jones on some of the things that he has promised them that they were going to do. Jim had promised as an alternate to them dying in Jonestown that they could go to the Soviet Union. I'm, I'm listening to you. you. You asked me about Russia. I'm right now. I'm making a call to Russia. What, what more do you suggest? Eventually, the rhetoric ratchets up enough that she is shouted down. Some guy in the crowd. Christine, your life has been extended to today. That, that you're standing there is because of him. And then everyone applauds and cheers and shit. That's when I noticed that there were armed guards that had kind of taken positions up around the pavilion. I'm thinking, where did all these fucking guns come from? Jones came down off the podium and he said, Hey, we got to do this. We, we, got, to, we got to go. That if we don't go this way, we're going to go like this. And they were coming taking like newborn babies out of their mother's arms. Then Jim Jones quote again saying, Mother, 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 please, mother, please, please don't do this. Don't do this. Lay down your life with your child, but don't do this. Because apparently the moms were fighting the guards, taking their kids and shit. And Jim's all trying to be like, don't do this. Don't be this way. Yeah, fuck him. Douchebag. <laughs> There was a young kid, his name was Sonny, and when he came inside, he bumped into me. And at that same time, I, I'm, I'm just getting choked up, I'm sorry, because like, it's just really, really fucking uh, intense. There was a young kid, his name was Sonny, and when he came inside, he bumped into me. And at that same time, he's falling to the ground, and he's going into convulsion. And then you got Jim Jones. Hurry, hurry, my children, hurry. All right, let us not fall into the hands of the enemy. Hurry, my children, hurry. I grabbed the kid from the shoulders up. And in that process of taking him out of the pavilion, this, this kid died in my arms. And I mean, I just felt the life go out of him. To me, at that point, I knew that this shit was real. Jim Jones. Die with respect. Die with a degree of dignity. It's it's not death. It's just it's stepping over into another plane. Don't 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 be this way. 
I ain't never used the term suicide, and I'm not gonna never use the term suicide. That man killed. He was killing us. As I walked up to the back of the pavilion, I saw a woman named Rosie on the ground crying, holding her dead baby. There were maybe eight or nine other people who were dying or in the process of dying. Inside, I just wanted things to stop. Please, just let me catch my breath. Let me figure out what's happening here. I looked to my right and I saw my wife with our son in her arms and poison being injected into his mouth. My son was dead and he was frothing at the mouth. You know, cyanide, it, it makes people froth at the mouth. My wife died in my arms and my dead baby son was in her arms. And I, I held her and I said, I love you. I love you because it's all I could say. She, di she died in my arms, man. Ugh. Like when I first saw this documentary, when I first, that particular exchange, man, like this whole moment, like when everything's just going to hell. It's heavy. I, 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 it was very heavy and I got really emotional, you know, like I actually teared up. Cause like, I mean, how could you not show emotion? Yeah, so I mean, I mean like such I mean, senseless fucking like d like yeah. the defiling of of these very sacred bonds between families. You're just yeah. for no reason, no good reason. You're doing this bullshit. I mean, that's, and you and I didn't know the the context behind all of it. I knew like, oh, there's Kool Aid and people died. I was just thinking it was just a bunch of adults, you know were brainwashed who drank kool-aid with poison and died i didn't know it was like 350 or th over 300 something kids i didn't know it was all these newborn babies that were injected with fucking poison by their own mothers i didn't know that aspect <laughs> who had it. no choice the baby had no, no say then you, you know, cuts to jim jones referring to people drinking uh, all this uh, poisonous liquid he's saying quickly 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 where's the vat the vat the vet, bring it here so the adults can begin. My wife came up to me. She didn't have no tears in her eyes. She was just, just in a daze. And my mother, my grandmother, my sister, my brother, they gone. And you know, she said, just take me. Just take me and just lay me down next to my grandmama. And she went up to that Kool-Aid, to that death barrel, and she just didn't hesitate. Just took it and drunk it. And then told me to hold her, to take her, and and I did, and she died in my arms. And once I laid her down, and I told, and, and she told me how she wanted to lay with her grandmother. I, I at that point I knew that I didn't have no reason to be there no more. Then Jim Jones again. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Fucking murder. It's not suicide. We were just fucking slaughtered. Fucking slaughtered. There was nothing dignified about it. Had nothing to do with revolutionary suicide. Nothing to do about making a fucking statement. It was just a senseless waste. Senseless waste and death. This is an anonymous letter from somebody who died in Jonestown just before they drank that poisonous liquid. To whomever finds this note, Collect all the tapes, all the writing, all the history. The story of this movement, this action, must be examined over and over. We did not want this kind of ending. We wanted to live, to shine, to bring light to a world that is dying for a little bit of love. There's quiet as we leave this world. The sky is gray. People file by us slowly and take that somewhat bitter drink. Many more must drink.
A teeny kitten sits next to me watching. A dog barks. The birds gather on the telephone wires. Let all the story of this people's temple be told. If nobody understands, it matters not. I am ready to die now. Darkness settles over Jonestown on its last day on Earth. Now, I also remember reading somewhere that animals were also killed, too. Which is, you know, I mean, why? I mean, this whole thing is like, why? Like, this whole entire massacre, you're just... I'm just wondering why. And and your answer, you don't really get a clear answer. Because it's just, there isn't one. It's just somebody was uh, was completely psychotic, uh, ended up uh, getting a grip over a bunch of people. They were isolated. They were uh, separated from society. They were uh, essentially uh, uh, intimidated into remaining under his power. And when he used that power to uh, take their lives... That, that a lot of them were either intimidated into doing it or were actually forced to because if they didn't do it, there were people with guns and bow and arrows that were ready and willing to do it. Uh, apparently, there were, uh, there were plans that were set in place ahead of time trying to figure out how he was, how Jim Jones was going to be able to do this. A lot. Uh, he figured this out with his uh, confidants and his uh, people within his inner circle. And... Um, they were like, well, w- the guns, we don't have enough guns. We don't have enough ammunition to kill uh, all these people with, with guns or, or with arrows. We don't have enough arrows. We don't have enough uh, ammunition to be able to do it. So uh, poison. That, that's how they decided to do it. And it was very cheap. Like uh, They ordered some cyanide in the mail, and it was a, a very a paltry sum. And apparently you could do that because it's just, you know, you could potassium cyanide, you can use it for chemistry or whatever and all that. So this small uh, poultry, you know, amount of cyanide was enough to be able to to, to do the job. Um, like I said earlier in the first part, it wasn't actually Kool-Aid. It was a, it was a knockoff called Flavor-Aid. And apparently the flavor was grape. Um, so here's another quote. I never believed in heaven my whole life. You know, that's not the way I operated. But when I was in Guyana and when I'd watched the sunrise, I actually thought there was a heaven on earth. And now I can't believe in heaven anymore. I'm saddened because it didn't work out because it just seems so beautiful. And I'll say this about November 18th. I felt I'd lost a family and I knew I'd lost my children. We were people that we wanted to make a change. It's a shame it didn't happen. It might not never happen. But one thing I can say is at least we tried, and we didn't sit back and wait on the laurels for somebody else to try it. Yes, we tried it. Yes, it was a failure. Yes, it was very tragic. But at least we tried. Fuck you. Fuck you and your at least we tried bullshit. (laughs) Writing off, yes, it was a failure. Yes, it was very tragic. But yeah, well, maybe you shouldn't have tried. Maybe you fucking shouldn't have tried. Not in that way. Not with that fucking psycho. Jesus Christ. That person didn't have a very enlightened way of looking back at that. 
So well, you, they're probably still uh, uh, entranced by Jim Jones gosh. and just the whole situation. So then you have the last quote here of the documentary. I never had any dreams of Jonestown until this one dream came. I could see myself in Jonestown walking, and when I looked to my left, there was my son. He was standing in the middle of a duffel bag, and just right when I got ready to reach out and touch his head, he pulled the bag up like this, and the bag fell, and he was gone. 909 People's Temple members died at Jonestown. Tim Carter, Stanley Clayton, and three others escaped into the jungle. Five people were killed on the airstrip. Approximately 80 Jonestown residents, including three of Jim Jones's sons, were away that day and survived. Jim Jones himself died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's actually it's actually not known if it's self if it was self-inflicted or not. Um, I th- I, th- I think it was. No, the the documentary filmmaker was actually interviewed after the. Uh, oh, okay. And he was saying that yeah, they don't know for sure if it was self-inflicted. It was. I'm. I'm- more than likely, it probably was. I mean, the problem they couldn't really figure out for sure because I think the bodies had decomposed like so badly by the time they ended up uh, uh, getting over there to uh, Guyana. Yeah, and the Rolling Stone article that that uh, it's a really good read, but oh fuck, it's really hard to read because it really uh, shows in detail like the aftermath. Like, they're talking about the smell of the bodies, and they're all bloated, and just, you know, rotting, and it was just, ugh. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't really know what else to say. I mean, there is this thing about 13 things, but, like, a lot of the stuff that we already really talked about, so, um... I personally feel that I, I'm honestly said all I all I really wanted to say about Jonestown. It's just such a I mean, there was this woman, this elderly woman, she actually slept throughout the entire ordeal. What? Yeah, uh Hyacinth Thrash, an elderly African American woman who slept inside her cabin throughout the whole ordeal. She woke up the following morning and walked over to a senior citizen's building where she saw bodies covered in sheets. Her sister, Zippera Edwards, was among the dead. In her memoir, The Onlyest One Alive, published in 1995, Frash recalled, There were all of those dead being put in bags, people I'd known and loved. God knows I never wanted to be there in the first place. I never wanted to go to Guyana to die. I didn't think Jim would do a thing like that. He let us down. Okay, but were you guys there in the church back in California when he's like, yeah, that drink you just drank was poisonous and you're all going to die soon and everyone starts flipping their shit and he goes, JK, it wasn't really poisonous. That was just a test of your loyalty. Now you got these people saying, oh, I never knew Jim would do a thing like this. Uh, that well, was, that happens. There were so many red flags before. But that happens in all of these cults, you know. I didn't know that that would happen, or even with other, you know, people, you know, end up killing other people. I didn't think that he would do that or she would do that. You know, that happens all the time. Uh, the People's Temple also had a pet chimpanzee named Mister Muggs. All right, That's just the Jim really I mean, liked monkeys. He did. 
Um, Mr. Muggs is a chimpanzee Jim Jones claimed who he had rescued from scientific experiments. Uh, although, according to Jeff Gwynn's The Road in Jonestown, he may have actually purchased mugs from a pet store. In his Indiana days, uh, Jones once sold pet monkeys door to door. Muggs became sort of a mascot for the temple under the care of Joyce Touchette, whose family were devoted members of the temple. A 1973 article from the Temple Reporter, the church's publication, told Muggs' story. Only 18 months old, he had the intelligence of a four-year-old child. It may sound anthropomorphic, but Muggs will follow every command of Pastor Jones, will defend him and then any, when anyone comes up casually to pet the chimpanzee. Like so many other victims, Mr. Muggs met a tragic end on Jonestown's last day because the chimpanzee was shot to death. Jesus Christ! Never ends! A six-year-old boy was a catalyst that led to the tragedy. Tim and Grace Stowen were a married couple and followers of Jim Jones during the temple's early years in California. Tim was an attorney for the temple, and Grace was a member of Jones's inner circle. In 1972, Grace gave birth to a boy named John Victor Stowen, and Jones claimed to be the father. Complicating matters about the paternity, Tim signed an affidavit confirming Jones as John's father. When Grace defected from the church in 1976, she left her son with Jones, fearing that her life and John's were in danger. Together, she and Tim, who left the church a year later, sought to get John back through the U.S. courts. By that time, John was already in Guyana, and Jones adamantly refused to hand him over, despite court orders that he must do so. The dispute over John's paternity symbolized the bitter conflict between the temple and, his, and its opponents. If the Stowans prevailed in getting John back, it would signal the loss of Jones's far-reaching power over his people and galvanize the other relatives of the temple-seeking members seeking the return of their loved ones from Jonestown. In the end, John Victor Stowen was among approximately 304 people aged 17 years or younger that were found dead in Jonestown. Apparently he did some uh, other stuff like talking about uh, uh, his childhood, his need to control people, his deceit and his anger toward people who betray or abandon him. Could be traced to his childhood in Indiana. A loner during his youth, Jim was entertained his playmates in the loft of his family's barn and made them his captive audience. One time, he even locked up his young friends in the barn. He then performed experiments on animals and conducted funerals for them. The funeral thing doesn't strike me as that weird, but when he actually was the one who killed the animal, that yeah, that's kind of uh, fucked. Yeah. So, um, other Temple survivors actually experienced their own tragedies after Jonestown. Uh, following Jonestown, the widespread media coverage that followed, former Temple members, including those who had lost loved ones, initially struggled to resume their lives, which is understandable. Others had their own personal tragedies after the cataclysmic event. In 1979, Mike Prokes, the Temple's media relations man who escaped death in Jonestown, called a press conference in a California motel room to defend the temple. He then later went into a bathroom and killed himself with a gunshot wound to the head. Husband and wife Al and Jeannie Mills, who were prominent defectors and opponents of, George, of Jones, were found murdered at their Berkeley, California home in 1980, a crime that has remained unsolved. So now things come full circle. There's an unsolved mystery that ties in with... Jonestown. Oh, wow. 
with Jim Jones. Yeah, that's one thing the documentary filmmaker was saying about this particular documentary is like the aftermath of Jonestown was good enough for uh, its own documentary. Um, I wish they would do something like that. Was murdered. uh, uh, Paula Adams, a former Temple staff member, was murdered along with her child in 1983 by her ex-lover Lawrence Mann a former Guyanese ambassador to the U.S. who then killed himself. A year later, Tyrone Mitchell, whose parents and siblings died in Jonestown, fired a rifle at a Los Angeles schoolyard, killing one person and injuring more than 10 others before fatally shooting himself. And Chad Rhodes, whose mother Juanita Bogay was pregnant with him in Jonestown, was charged in the killing of a police officer in Oakland in 1999, around the time of Jonestown's 30th anniversary, Rhodes is reported, reportedly serving life in prison without parole. And then uh, some people think it was mass murder, not mass suicide. While the general view of what happened was a mass suicide because people lined up to take the poison drink, there have been arguments from witnesses and former Temple members that it was really mass murder. Long before the actual event, Jones had his followers drink what they initially believed was poison as a test of loyalty to him, which in hindsight was a rehearsal for what would later happen. When Jones implemented the actual suicide plan in Jonestown, there were armed armed guards with guns and crossbows to ensure that nobody was getting out alive. Some victims were found to have marks on their bodies, suggesting that they were injected with the poison. Adding to the mass murder argument is that numerous young children died in Jonestown, who couldn't possibly know what they were doing. One of the proponents for the mass murder view is Raven author Tim Reiterman, as who as a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner was injured during the shooting attack on Congressman Ryan at the airstrip. Jones put all the pieces in place for the, for a last act of self-destruction, he wrote, then gave the order to kill the children first, sealing everyone's fate. Tim Carter, who lost his wife and baby son in Jonestown, also concurs that it was mass murder. Jones was going to kill everybody, no matter what, he says. There were so many lies that Jones had told to people to create a state of siege mentality in the community that even those that were making a principled stand of revolutionary suicide probably were influenced by a lot, a lot by the lies that he was telling them. So that's all, folks. Yeah, that's that's about all the time I have anyway. I got to get hit the road. So, yep. That was a pretty fucking brutal call. Like I said, it's yep. it's like Heaven's Gate times 10. Heaven, It's like Heaven's Gate on crack or Flavor-Aid, whichever you prefer. But yeah, folks, so now whenever you hear somebody flippantly toss out the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, you don't got to go all social justice warrior on them and be like, um, actually, that's not a very uh, kosher term. But just be like, hey, do you know what that actually means? And you maybe can explain to them. What yeah, happened exactly. at Jonestown? Yeah, yeah. Don't be like, oh, don't say that. You know, that's, um, that's offensive. Actually, the- <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to come across like that at all, like folks. Like I, I, um, I try, I tried to not do that. But really, that that's my thing. It's like I, it's knowing the context of it is something that I, I think a lot of people should know about. I heard that shit recently. Uh, I was watching some video and someone just flippantly said it, and I'm just like, man. And it was a former Scientologist. Yeah, I was watching a video <laughs> about this former Scientologist or whatever, and uh, he was talking. He was saying something about drinking the Kool Aid. I'm like, "Hey, buddy, you're one to talk about drinking Kool Aid." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's all Tom we got for uh, 
this depressing ass episode. Sorry it wasn't funnier or more uplifting, but I mean, you don't really come here for funny and uplifting. You come here for the mysteriousness. And this 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 man's brain and his inner workings were definitely yeah, mysterious. Yeah, that, that, that is one of the most mysterious things. That's a total mystery. Yeah, so... Uh, that's one of the biggest mysteries is is what is going on in, in, a, in a psychotic individual's mind like Jim Jones. Yep, and you know what? Believe it or not, there are politicians out there to this day who have the same kind of insanity that Jim Jones has. They just haven't killed anyone yet. That charisma, that that hunger for power, it's it's present in a lot of uh, powerful figures. But anyway, um, that's all time we got. If you want more me and Mike, consider following us on our own little YouTube channels that are oh so separate but oh so equal. Uh, you can find Mike at youtube.com slash OCP communications. He reviews movies. What was the last movie you talked about there, Mike? An anime uh, called Porco Rosso. Ah, Ame Neba Totoro. My neighbor Totoro. I'm just saying <laughs> that's a different one. Just saying an anime but, uh, Porco, name. Ro- Porco Rosso. Uh, it's uh, by Miyazaki, and it actually there's an English dub uh, by Disney, which has uh, Michael Keaton, who voices the lead character Porco Rosso, who was an Italian pilot who was cursed, and now he has the face of a pig. So it's a flying pig. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. And it that takes definitely... place during uh, 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 after World War One. Definitely sounds very nineteen twenties. Sounds very Japanese. Um, you can find me on YouTube, youtubecom dancing with ghosts. Um, my last album or my last video that I did was a track by track analysis of the Genesis album We Can't Dance. A Genesis nerdgasm. Yes, of epic proportions. <laughs> uh, that that was the last album with singer and drummer Phil Collins before Phil Collins permanently left the band. Um, so if you if you want my take on their last album, their last statement artistically with Mr. Phil Collins, go over to my channel and check that out. You could also check out my own, my original music on there. I have music videos for my band, Dancing With Ghosts. And we also have t-shirts available for the band and for this podcast. You can find all that great, lovely merchandise in the uh, the link or the, the description of this podcast in the little bio section or wherever the fuck. I'll have hyperlinks to all that stuff if you want to support us that way. As for me and Mike... We bid you adieu. We will see you next week. Try not to die. Don't cry. And stand by. Goodbye. See ya. What's up, everybody? Just want to remind everyone that my album, The Nightmare Inside You, is still up for sale. And we have new band t-shirts as well. All of this is in the description of this podcast. So check it out. And if you dig the music, maybe consider supporting me. Now enjoy some more of the album.
So I Hold guess on. Go Africa. Ahead. Go, go ahead and say something into the mic. Africa. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Mike, I can't, I, guess, I can't have a conversation with you unless it's being recorded and a lot of people are going to listen to it. You you need to understand <laughs> that. Like, I can't speak with you unless it's somehow benefiting us <laughs> in the podcast. Okay. I'm just joking. All right. I'm just joking. So, um, apparently, uh, Africa by Toto is like some meme nowadays. I, I, I don't, I, I just recently found out that people are using it in memes so I'm like, some people are ironically loving it or something, and I'm like, the song is fucking great. I don't really, it's not. I there's nothing ironically good about it. Like it's it's just a good song. I know. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that with a passion. Like I I I fuck it. Okay, so uh, I played a show this Saturday. I will probably elaborate more on that in the podcast. Uh -huh. But um, the guy who played after me was kind of taking requests and like these broy douches up there, you know, with the camouflage hat and all that shit. Yeah. They're they're like, play it uh, Africa by Toto. And I'm just like, oh, you guys are such fucking just dick bags. I I I hate how that's become like it's like worked its way into the modern lexicon, and, and yeah, and now it's it's yeah, it's a meme. I mean, it's yeah, it's a meme, and it's it's annoying because I have always loved that song. So have I. Um, it's one of my favorite songs of all time. So. Toto is one of those bands that has like four great songs, and the rest yeah. are just kind of garbage. <laughs> and, it's like Asia. Yeah, <laughs> and they like blew their whole creative awesome wad in Africa, Rosanna, and like hold the line. Have you heard their soundtrack for Dune? That's pretty good too. Dune? They did the score. They did the score for David Lynch's Dune. Yeah. Oh, Dune. I thought you said Doom like the computer game. I was no, like, Dune. Uh, I haven't seen that one yet. I heard that that's one uh, a movie I need to I need to check out. Yeah, I. It's it's different. I'll, I'm honestly, I'll, I'll dude. I'm not that big you know of a. That. I'm not that big of a fan of David Lynch, to be honest. I know he's like. I think you might like this because it's 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 crazy and weird, but it's not as nonsensical or as pretentious as some of Lynch's films can be. So I, I think you might like uh, Dune. I know a lot of people are mixed on the film. I've never read the book, so I can't be that guy who's like, it's not like the book. I, I don't know. I've never read the book, so I can't really say anything. Uh, but I do know that. It, it's a lot. Of, I I really enjoy it. It's one of the most visually stunning uh, films that I've personally seen, especially from the from the uh, era of the 1980s. Uh, and you have even early uh, performances from actors like Patrick Stewart. He's in it. Oh my! Uh, it's uh, Kyle MacLachlan's uh, first ever acting role. Uh, he he was in Twin Peaks yeah. and a bunch of other other stuff. You also have uh, Sean Young before she went crazy, or maybe she was crazy then too. I don't know. Uh, and you also have Sting. Oh wow! Sting X in it. Yeah, it's like a and the and the scores by Toto, <laughs> and they sing a song that's I think is used in the end credits. Sounds like some like variation on Labyrinth, where you got like Bowie and he does the soundtrack, and it's like this. Uh... People who should. Oh, it, it's a lot darker and stranger than Labyrinth is. Okay. Um, don't you don't you think don't you admit, Mike, that David Lynch is is just slightly overrated nowadays? 
Well, I don't I don't know if I would say overrated. I would just say that he's an acquired taste. He's always been an acquired taste. So it's one of those directors where you either love everything he does or he's a mixed bag. For me, it's a mixed bag. Was that did somebody just die in the background? No, that's my mom. Her her sneezes are just crazy okay like they are absolutely insane i just heard i thought she, i heard like a demon she's, shriek she's, <laughs> she's got her uh she, she's got time off so she's home she's watching sex in the city so i'm like great you know now my mom's watching sex in the city that's like, like you know that's like a middle-aged woman's rite of passage to watch that show so i mean because <laughs> my mom my mom definitely had her sex in the city phase as well it must remind them mm. when they were younger and sluttier and freer and shit before I don't they know, got. It's just so awkward to watch that with your with your mom or something. Yeah, like, I just it's just no, I'm not. Yeah, because I'm not uh, gonna sit down and watch that with my mom. It's just it's just too weird. Because Samantha, <laughs> he, her titties are constantly getting pulled out in the show. You're constantly <laughs> seeing her tits, which I don't mind, but yeah, you don't want to see that in front of your mom. Ugh. Although the first new, uh, the first uh, ever bit of nudity I saw was with my mom because it was a uh, surprise type of nudity because uh, it's uh, Swamp Thing had multiple different releases on home video and there was one re uh, that MGM put out and it was unbeknownst to them apparently it was the uh, UK release the international cut and in the international cut there's nudity. There's like a scene where Adrian Barbeau is is uh, swimming topless in a, in a, in a, in the swamp and there's another bit of nudity in it. So mom let me rent the movie. I think it was from Blockbuster. It was either Blockbuster or Hollywood Video and I I, I not Hollywood Video. It's definitely it was definitely Blockbuster. So rented it from Blockbuster and it was actually in the family section because it was like rated PG. So I I popped it in and watched it with my mom. And then there's the the nudity scenes, so that that was extremely awkward. Awkward. Yeah. I, I mean, first ever exposure to nudity on film is with my mom right next to me. When we went to see thing. when when me and my cousin <laughs> and my aunt and uncle we went to see Titanic in the theaters, and there was the scene. Oh, draw where... me like one of your French girls. Exactly. Yeah, there was a scene <laughs> where what whatever her name is, the actress, I forget her name. Uh, is getting painted by Leonardo DiCaprio, and you know you see her full on titties. Now I heard that w w was that like a was that actually her or did they uh, aug uh, augment I don't, her? I don't know if it was her. It might have been a stunt, uh, you know, a nudity double, but it might it might have been her because I know that there are people who actresses and actors who just don't want to uh, be nude, so they have a nude double. Uh, Kate Winslet. I mean, who the fuck would blame him, you know? Uh, that It was Kate Winslet. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, too. I couldn't remember her name. That's crazy. Like, that's a movie that was, like, the biggest film of that year, 1997, and was, like, ridiculously successful, and I hey, just did not... that movie still really... is a great movie, in my opinion. I mean, that that's just one of the classics. That's a modern classic, as far I'm as I'm concerned. I'm on it. I mean, I liked it more when I was younger, like... The last half, the part, the part when the ship starts to sink, like th th I like that. There's some nice uh, effects and some good uh, suspense and stuff like that. 
Uh, the the stuff before that, I'm iffy on. I'm just not into the whole love story thing. And all I that, liked it. So. For, it, it. It aroused my like prepubescent like feelings down there, like in my <laughs> downstairs no no regions. Like it, it really like awoke. It awoke some like thing. I always like wanted to like be well. For me, I got that with uh, Gina Davis and uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, specifically her spy alter ego charlie because she plays like this uh she has amnesia she's a super spy that has amnesia so she's all acting like some housewife and just you know not very sexy at all and then and then when she remembers who she is she cuts her hair short dyes it blonde oh yeah i'm seeing her right now yeah, yeah. she was pretty fucking hot yeah yeah, I actually have a friend who I actually have a friend who looks like her. Her name is uh, 